Good morning. It's good to be here in God's house this morning praising Him. And I'm excited about the message I get to share with you today. If you're uh, new to this church or you're uh, one of our guests today, we're a part of a series called Rooted that's really rooting us in the story of the good news of Jesus Christ. And over the past few weeks, we've been talking about this first symbol. In fact, if you are one of our guests, we'd love for you to go to our information center. There's some bracelets out there that we're wearing these as reminders to speak good news to those who are around us. But we're walking through the first of these symbols, which is the story of the incarnation. It's the story of God coming to earth in the person of Jesus and choosing to come fully God, fully man. And so we looked at the Christmas story, but now over the past few weeks, we've been trying to transition into the story of what that means for us. That The the incarnation is not just a story that happens once as an abject kind of theological principle, but the incarnation is something that God calls us to live out, to live as God's good news, His his flesh in the world. And so today I want to conclude this series, but first I want to ask that you turn with me to a a popular scripture that many of us probably have memorized if we've been in this story for a while, but it's the in the Gospel of John, if you have your Bibles open with me if you would, Gospel of John chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. Uh, This is one of those verses you see kind of behind the uprights, behind home plate if people are holding up those banners, one of those key passages, John 3, verse 16 and 17. For God so loved the world, That he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And this is what we've been describing as we've talked about the incarnation. This flesh appearance of God in the world. That when Jesus comes down, he comes with a purpose. He comes with a mission. God sent him to save the world he loves. And to give us the good news that we get to share with others. Another one of those passages that talks about this move of God to come uh, be among us is a, in the story of John, in the Gospel of John, just a couple of chapters before. It's in John 1, verse 14. And this is the passage I'd love for you to kind of keep your finger in. We're going to come back to this passage a couple times today in the sermon. John 1, verse 14. says there th- this uh, about Jesus, who's described as the Word in this passage. The Word became flesh. And made his dwelling among us, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I love the way the the message translation translates this passage. This is what it says. The Word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Don't you love that image? This idea that God is not far off from any one of us. He decides to come and moves right in. To, to the earth in a way that we can actually touch him, flesh and blood, at least those in the first century got that experience. Now this is a different story, isn't it, than the other religions and the other myths about gods out there? Because so many of those ancient myths that would have been going on around this time would have been stories about gods that didn't really think that much of humans. We were pawns in the larger scheme of what the gods were up to. But in this story, God continually moves toward his people. We see this uh, in the Old Testament. We see that God first moves and works through the prophets, through his messengers. He uses these mediators as people who uh, share the message of good news from God. So Moses hears from God and speaks to the people, and Abraham and others are like that. But there's a difference that happens when they enter into the, are about to enter into the promised land, because the people of God live in the wilderness, and they build this tabernacle, kind of like this tent city that they move around in. 
And in the middle of that city is this place called the Holy of Holies, and God dwells in the midst of that place. He's coming closer to his people. Now he's not just speaking through mediators. He's there somehow living amongst them. But it moves on past that to now uh, when they move into the promised land, they build this temple eventually. And God actually, his presence comes down in that temple. God is present among the people of God. An amazing thing. So opposite so many of the myths and stories of God's elsewhere. But this move in John 1.14 is another move toward us, isn't it? And God moves into the neighborhood. He comes close to us. He takes on flesh. He lives like us. He knows the temptations we face, and he's experienced those things. And this tells us that our God, and this series of things, our God is a sending God. This is what he does. He sends. He comes close to us. And it's not just Jesus that he sends. As we read on in the story of God, Jesus passes that sending on to us. This is what it says at the end of the Gospel of John. This is John chapter 20. Jesus has been resurrected and the disciples haven't yet seen him resurrected and he appears to them. And this is the scene that unfolds. I want you to pay attention to these words. This is John 20 beginning in verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So in the same way that Jesus is sent into the world as God's presence in the world, Jesus comes back from his resurrection. He stands before these disciples and he says to them, guess what? The same thing that God did with me sending his good news into the world, now I'm sending each and every one of you. And that's not just meant to be heard by the first disciples. I want each and every one of you to hear this calling as well. God is ascending God and it didn't stop with Jesus. He's calling each and every one of us. He's sending each and one, every one of us into the world as good news. So as we close this series today, I want to consider this mission. That Jesus gives in John chapter 20. What does it look like to be a sent people? What does it look like to receive this mission God has given us and live it in our world in the 21st century? Let's pray as we open with that question this morning. God, I I ask that you would would remind us, that you would uh, give us back this calling that you gave to those disciples in John chapter 20. Would you help us realize, God, that mission is not something that's extinct, it's not a thing of the past, that Jesus isn't the last one who's sent, but you've passed that commission on to us. So God, I pray you would fill us with bold courage this week, God. Fill you, I pray also you'd give us the courage, that, but also the patience, God, to know your timing in that mission. This morning, God, I pray you would pour through me the gift of preaching, so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray, and everyone said, Amen. Well, if you're anything like me and you read a passage like John chapter 20, you wonder, how are we supposed to go about this whole mission thing? And for years, we've known how we go about that mission thing, haven't we? Because we have this super elite class of people who get called by God to go and do God's mission in places where people haven't heard about Jesus. Isn't that how we talk about mission and missionaries? We tend to think about it as a foreign thing. Because obviously this place, as everyone knows about Jesus, and we've kind of done everything we need to here, and so the way we've thought about mission has been, missions is something that's done other places, amongst tribes that haven't yet heard the name 
of Jesus. But if you paid any attention over the last 65 years in North America, you realize the situation's different, isn't it? Missions can't just be something we do someplace else. That if you're like me and in my neighborhood, when you got up this morning, it would be foolish to think that everyone's just going to get up at some point and join a community of faith later in the day. It takes something in our world to get up and decide to make this commitment, not just to church, but to a life that's lived as disciples day in and day out. See, this isn't just a task that's called for those who are super Christians who go to get a degree in missions. No, my contention this morning is that every single one of us who bear the name of Jesus are missionaries in this world. It's not just something done for those who are called to a special task. Missionaries aren't just those people who have the gift of evangelism. No, each and every one of us with the Great Commission and with the sending in John chapter 20 is called to be a part of God's mission in the world and to join Him as His missionaries. Amen? But this does also mean that we have to take a hard look at the assumptions that we have about mission in North America. What I'm trying to say is that we no longer have home field advantage anymore. We're now playing, in some sense, on enemy turf, aren't we? And, and, and we can't play church anymore, assuming that this is a task that those who are professionals will go out and do. No, we're all called into this role. So I want to read these words again from John chapter 20, not just as words that are read to the disciples at the first scene where Jesus says this, but I want you to hear these as missionaries called out in your communities today. Hear these words as a word of blessing and as a word of sending. John chapter 20. Verse 20, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. See, Jesus is inviting us to live as he lived. He comes to the world in flesh and he lives this great news. He speaks this good news to the world. So if we're going to look at what it means for us to be sent, then maybe we need to look at the playbook that God gave Jesus. Over the past few weeks, we've read the story of the birth of Jesus. And we have uh, stories that come out in Matthew and Luke about the birth narrative, but we kind of leave Jesus at some point until he turns 12 years old. Do you remember this story? He gets lost. He's at the, the temple and his parents can't find him, which gives me a lot of relief as a parent to think that, man, if the Messiah's parents can forget him and lose him, then it's okay if we do every now and again. Like, this is a big deal, and they, they've lost Jesus in the midst of this. But it's interesting how the Bible talks about Jesus as a youngster. This is what it says in, in Luke 3, if you'll turn with me. Luke 3. This is a fascinating passage. Verse 23, the beginning of that passage. It says that now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd like a lot more information about these first 30 years, wouldn't you? I'd like to know what it was like to know Jesus the teenager. I'd like to know what it was like to know Jesus in his 20s, in rabbi school, growing up, learning what it means to follow God, learning what it means to really know who he is as the Son of God himself. What does that look like? He's 30 years old, and most scholars guess he's 33 years old when he dies. 33 years on earth, 3 years in ministry, 30 years of... I don't know, waiting? So here's my question. Why on earth did Jesus waste so much of his time on earth? Have you thought about that? 30 years old when he begins his ministry. He's got 33 years. This is God in flesh on the earth. 
If I were sending out a missionary, <laughs> and they went over to Zambia, and they decided, uh, you know, I'm going to take 30 years just to kind of get a lay of the land, then I'll start my ministry, it'd be a hard thing to keep supporting that missionary. There's something about Jesus that has a sense of the timing of what God's up to. There's something about Jesus that seems to have a patience that he gives up 30 years of his life to wait on the moment he's called. Because don't you feel the urgency I do in this world? I mean, North America doesn't have 30 years to wait for people to wake up and begin this task. So part of me wants to get out there. This is part of what my calling was. God, you're calling me in this season to be a mouthpiece for you. And so I didn't wait till I was 30. Maybe it would have been wise to wait as long as Jesus did, but... At 24, I launched out and said, I, I want to preach the Word. I feel an urgency about North America. I want to call people to the task of being a missionary in our lives. And the fact that God was in Nazareth for 30 years and no one noticed disturbs me a bit. It disturbs me a bit on behalf of the people in Nazareth, right? And how do you not know God showed up in the neighborhood and lived there for 30 years? But another piece of this that disturbs me is in my urgency about missions, how could Jesus himself live for 30 years and not someone pick up on the fact there's something significant about this guy? Now, we don't know all the stories and not everything's written there, but there's this sense in which 30 years is not spent and then there's this small stretch of three years. I think I would have gone about it differently. What's Jesus waiting for? But the more I thought about it, the more I believe Jesus actually has his reasons for the timing. Go back with me, if you would, to John chapter 1, verse 14. Hear this again about Jesus coming in the world. I think there's some clues in here about the reasons for why Jesus does what he does. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. I think there's something to the last phrase in John 1, 14. Full of grace and truth. Now, as we enter into our mission in the world, I think it's important to pay close attention to John 1.14 because when God sends Jesus into the world, this is how it describes him coming. And if we're going to be missionaries like Jesus, called in the same way, it's important for us to pay attention to how Jesus goes about this. And I think it's vital that we understand the tension of those two words. That as we're sent out into the world, we're called to be sent out full of grace and full of truth. Amen? I don't believe Jesus actually wastes his first 30 years. I believe Jesus understood how good mission happens. I like the way Hugh Halter says it in his book, uh, Flesh. This is what he says, Grace must precede truth if we are to model our lives after John 1.14 and be incarnational in the way of Jesus. And if you pay attention to the text, his strategy seems to work. This is Luke chapter 2. It's interesting what it says here. This is one of those baffling passages as well. Luke 2. Uh, verse 52. And Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, that's strange to think of this idea of Jesus growing, isn't it? Because there's part of me that thinks, doesn't he know who he is? He's God. He's got all this capability. Like, what, what does Jesus need to grow for? Now, there's a physical sense of that, that Jesus grows up from a baby to a man But there's a sense in which he grows in wisdom, it says. That Jesus is growing and nurturing, that all of us have this task. We're called to nurture our kids to grow in wisdom and stature. But notice what the end of that verse says. In favor with God, in favor with man. There's something about the way Jesus lives in the world during his first 30 years that draws people to him. Have you noticed this? 
Like you would expect, knowing our world, that a religious teacher wouldn't be all that attractive to those who are lost. But the people who he has hard things to say to, they seem to just love him. They're attracted to him. He's like a magnet, isn't he? Jesus has all these people just coming to him. He says he's there for the sinners. He says he's there for the sick. And sure enough, they show up at his front doorstep. He gains the favor of the people. It's grace that precedes the truth of his ministry that's sure to follow. And once Jesus gains the favor of the people, he does speak for the truth. He, he, he calls for repentance. And once Jesus does this, it continues on. And i got to say, I think John 1.14, that the order of his mission is so vital, full of grace and truth. This is the order of mission. Grace is called to precede truth. In the same way, you can say it this way, incarnation precedes proclamation. The way we live in the world, the way we grow relationships, the way our favor grows with man, there's something about that that allows uh, the truth of the word of the gospel to come and flourish in the lives of people that cannot happen without the relationship being built. See, relationship precedes the ability to speak into someone's life. And the problem with much of modern evangelism and mission is that we've gotten this backwards, haven't we? We tend to speak the truth without taking the time to build the relationship. And I get it. There's an urgency about us that needs to proclaim the truth. I'm not calling for grace only. What I'm calling for is the tension of these two things in the order that Jesus seems to do it in his own life. The problem with doing it the wrong way is that speaking the truth without building relationship will always sound like condemnation. You ever been uh, at a sporting event and there's that guy on the corner that's got the bullhorn? And he's screaming all these things about it's the end of the world coming and turn or burn type stuff. You're all going to hell. And there's a time where I've seen this kind of thing. And i got to tell you, if you speak words of truth, which there's a truth and a reality to what he's saying, without the relationship, it's going to sound like condemnation. How many of you who are moms, uh, you may identify with this. Holly, uh, man, early on when we had two kids and then went to three, like getting out of the house was this huge chore, but it was a life-giving chore, right? If she could just get out of the house. So she'd put, you know, the socks on our kids, especially in Denver, it was important to bundle them up and, and, and get their hats on, get them all, and, but then you get them in the car and they take that all off, you know, while they're sitting in their seats, it's just a mess. So she gets out of the grocery store and one, our, our baby didn't have her sock on and so this wonderful lady was trying to help by speaking truth, and she said, what are you doing taking your child out without her socks on, right? Have you had this experience, any moms who are out there? Is there anything that wants you to like, lose the love of Christ in an instant like that? Like all you're, all you're trying to do is just get out of the house. All you're trying to do is just get your life together enough to get out, and, and it's probably true. Yeah, your child needs socks, but without the relationship... Not knowing what that person's going through, it sounds a lot like condemnation, doesn't it? I've had that happen to me, and I've probably done a little of that to others. I've been guilty of trying to use logic to try to argue people into the kingdom of God. It's not all that successful. It doesn't work. Now, there was a time where it did work. There was a time in the modern era where we could agree on the uh, Scripture being the authority that we come to. And if you can agree on the authority of Scripture someone, you have a starting place to come from. But in the postmodern world, it's not the reality when you come to people, especially millennials in this generation. And what's true for you is true for me, but what's true for... It, it, you've got your own truth and I've got my own truth, so that's fine you believe that, but that doesn't say anything about my world and what I'm dealing with. And that impulse to speak truth without grace is rarely received well. People don't know how much you 
know until they know how much you care. People need to see the care that you have, the grace, the relationship that Jesus spends his life developing before he ever speaks a word of grace. There's something to the order of his mission. And throughout his ministry, Jesus seems to always be slowing down the urgency of his followers and trying to build their patience along the way. You remember the story at the wedding in Cana, Jesus' first miracle in the Gospel of John? Jesus' mother comes to him and says, they've run out of wine. Uh, do something about it. You remember Jesus' response? It's, woman? That's not a good way to address your mother. <laughs> woman? Why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. There's something that Jesus knows about his hour. Something his mom seems to know too because his hour is coming soon. But it's interesting how she seems to be so urgent about this moment. And Jesus is saying, Wait, my time's not yet come. This happens with the disciples later on. They're going to the city and he says, they, they say, go on ahead and, and why don't you do your miracles? And this is Jesus' response to his disciples who are urging him to go. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here for you. Any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. And after he said this, he stayed in Galilee. Jesus is patient because he knows that his time has not yet come to be offered up. But eventually he's going to die on the cross. And what does he say at the end? It's finished. All that God had given him to do was done in the time that God had given him to do it. And three years doesn't seem like enough, but somehow God was able to do what he needed to do with that time. We're so impatient at times, aren't we? And I don't want to see this as a bad thing because some of our impatience is an urgency. It's a love for people that wants them to come to a knowledge of the truth, that wants them to turn away from the cliff they're heading towards, to, to, to move into a way of life that may be more beneficial with fewer consequences. But we've got to remember about God who He is. This is what Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. How many of you are grateful for the patience of God? That patience is about His love for us. He wants everyone to come to a knowledge of the truth. And there are times where we're like, come Lord Jesus, take us back home where we belong. There's something about the timing of God that he seems to be more patient sometimes than we are. And so I don't want us to go away from our urgency and our love for people. But I do want us to realize that sometimes our time has not yet come. Sometimes it takes patience. 30 years was a long time to wait for Jesus. Spending three years with these 12 disciples seemed like they didn't get it at all. And yet the Holy Spirit comes into them in the book of Acts and they're changed, it seems like, in an instant. But I want you to look at the fruit that's come from the patience of Jesus. I mean, look at the world and how many are now followers of his because he waited on his timing. Some of us this morning, we need to hear this message. You feel an urgency. You feel a love for people. You don't want people to, to perish. You don't want people to go toward that cliff and walk away from their marriage or to walk away from whatever it might be, to walk into more trouble. We want to speak a word of truth and we feel such urgency about it. But one of the amazing things I've seen about sponsors in AA is the patience they're able to have. You know, to be able to say, this person's not going to be ready to be healed until they're ready. Sometimes they'll let them walk into trouble because they know it's going to take getting to that bottom and bottoming out before you finally get better. Some of us this morning need to learn patience. 
we're, we're too quick to walk into conversations that God has not developed and become ready for. And so as you're thinking about your one this year, your person that you're praying God would provide an opportunity for you to speak good news, maybe you need patience. Maybe that's what you need. But others of you this morning need a different message. Others of you this morning, you've been patient for too long. You've done so well at incarnation. You've done so well at grace and entering into their lives. You spent 30 years with someone and you've known all along there's going to come a moment where I've got to speak the truth or I've got to be able to share this message of good news and you haven't done it yet. And what I want to pray for you is the opposite of what I pray for those who need patience. I want to pray for boldness. This may be the time. You don't know how much time you have. Part of the message of the mission of God is God sent into the world at the right time. And if Jesus didn't act when he did, God would have gotten his mission done. But, but Jesus somehow knew something that we don't have knowledge of. It's the timing of God that seems perfect. Some of you develop that relationship and you gain the ability to say hard things. But sometimes when you build that relationship, it becomes real hard to speak the word of truth, isn't it? Because when it's a family member, it means more than just somebody that you yell at on the side of the road with a bullhorn. When you build that relationship, you don't want to let it go. You don't want to say something that may interrupt that relationship. But some of you may need to hear this this morning. It, it's going to take boldness from you. There's never going to be that certainty about the right time. You're going to have to trust the Spirit and at some point trust that God can work through those words. My freshman year of college, I went to school and I moved into my dorm room. And I remember meeting the guy next door to me and um, he didn't have as much hair as I did on his head, and so I thought he was an RA, but it turns out he was a freshman who had already started balding. I made a mistake from the day one, assuming he was an RA. But this guy actually became one of my really good friends at college. We got to know each other, and at first I would have never thought we would have been best friends. He lived a lot different in high school. He was a churchgoer and had been baptized, but he liked to party a lot, and that was his main goal of going to college. So I knew we were on different tracks, you know, me, the Bible major, and the guy next door who stayed up pretty late. We got to know each other, and it was amazing what happened. I grew a heart and a love for this guy, and to this day, uh, we're really good friends. In fact, he was in my wedding. And over the four years that we were uh, in school together, uh, I began to see God at work in this guy's life. He'd go to church with us, and yeah, he'd go home on the weekends uh, sometimes, and it would look a little different than the weekends we spent together. But I saw God working, and I saw a possibility of what God might do in this guy's life, and I prayed about that happening, and I realized at the end of my time at, in college that he was about to go off, and I didn't know if we'd ever be in the same city again. So I realized this was the time for me to speak up and say some things I needed to say into his life. So Holly and I prayed for a series of weeks before the last week before graduation happened. And I called him up, and I said, we got to get to lunch. I want to meet with you before you head out of town. And I was praying, and I was nervous in that lunch, knowing what I needed to say and not wanting to destroy the relationship that I developed. What I said to him when we were over lunch was, I see so much in you. I see so much of what God has done in your life and what he wants to do. And I just want to speak the hard word right now. There's so much more inside of you that if you would step up and step into discipleship, you can't imagine what God would do in your life. And I was nervous at that point. What's going to happen in the relationship? But i got to tell you, God blessed that relationship. God softened his heart and he responded so well. And his response to me was, no one has cared about me enough to confront me like you did today. And I'm grateful. Now he's a father with three kids. He's married, and he's taking his kids to church. He's discipling them. It's amazing to see what God has done in his life. And I go back to that moment, and I think about all that I'd built up and 
how hard it was to come across that line and just say a hard word of truth to him. Thinking about what the Spirit had done in that moment, I'm wondering how many other conversations do I miss out on like that because I'm fearful? How many other conversations have I built up the ability to say something? I've poured in the grace. I've poured in the incarnation. And proclamation's what's needed next. The good news is good news. We just think it's bad news sometimes. But I'm here to tell you, it's the best news anyone could receive. And if you have a relationship with someone, you have an ability to speak into their lives what others cannot. But I want to say this about speaking the truth. How you speak the truth is as important as the fact that you speak the truth. How you speak the truth is just as important as the fact that you speak the truth. It's important how we carry this message. It's important the relationship we have, and it's important that we pray that God will use our words, as feeble as they are, to move people along in His timing. But it's vital that we understand this distinction that Jesus talks about, this tension that we hold together. Grace and truth. And the order of that mission is so important. Jesus spent 30 years growing in favor with men before he grew up to speak truth to them. It's not either or, it's both and. But I believe the order matters. That grace precedes truth. That incarnation precedes proclamation. Let me close this series today with a word of encouragement to you. We've been talking about these bands and about the people that we're praying for. We've written names on canvases that we're praying God will open up opportunities to share the good news with this year. And I know a lot of you, you feel real unprepared for that conversation. Maybe you've never gone through this opportunity to share good news with a friend and it's real nerve-wracking because you built relationship and you don't want to destroy what you've built. And what I want to say to you this morning is you are far more prepared to lead that person to a relationship with Jesus than you think you are. Often the thing that holds us back is we think we need all the answers to the questions they might ask. Or we think our life doesn't line up with the reality we're wanting to point them toward. I'm here to tell you, those things are important. It's important to to grow in our faith, to have an answer for the faith that we have. But your incarnation, your relationship, your grace that you've poured into their life is more powerful than any words that a preacher can speak from any stage. I got to tell you, we're in a different age today. As a preacher, it's nerve wracking because I know in your pocket you can listen to any preacher across the country that what he preaches. And we got Andy Stanley down the hall in a classroom, like that you're listening to in class. And and there's part of me that says I'm not good enough to carry the conversation. I I don't know how to share this good news in a way that holds people's attention and calls them to faith and calls them to more. But more important than any gift that I have or ability to answer any question that's out there, the most important thing that I can do here. It's not preached to you. The most important thing is live a life of, worthy of imitation. Because if I incarnate this message in this community, all of a sudden the words mean something altogether different. And the same thing is true for you in your office. The same thing is true for you in your home. The same thing is true for you wherever you go this week. You are the incarnation of Jesus in the world. You have the Spirit of God that lives among you. The questions you don't know how to answer The prayer is the Spirit will give you the words to speak in the season you need them. And it's amazing when you step into those moments, needing the words of God, how easily they come in moments you would never expect it, but you've got to step out in faith. You've got to step out and and, and be bold to, to, to offer this good news, to offer a Bible study and see what happens. You'll be amazed if you step into a Bible study with someone who's new to faith, what they'll see that you've long lost because they have new and fresh eyes to see the text and are being spoken to, even as new Christians in ways that blow, will blow your mind. 
God is at work in the lives of people before you ever go touch them. So don't think it depends on you. God's at work. Pray that he'll continue to be at work and then that conversation can somehow be a seed, can somehow be water that continues to do it. But in the end, it's only God that can bring the growth. We're just faithful waters and and people who plant seeds. So plant your seeds this week. Throw a little water where it needs to go. And trust God that he's the one who's going to do what he's promised he will do. He is faithful. Amen? What's most important are not the answers you have to give. What's most important is the life that you live uh, of, of building relationship. And you've done it well. It's just time to have the patience when you need it. It's time to have the boldness when that's needed as well. Let's close with a word of prayer this morning. We'll close our time. God, thank you so much for your good news. Thank you so much for sending Jesus to the earth for showing us the best way possible to live. God, I thank you for conversations that are being dwelled on right now that need to happen. The way your spirit convicts us to have conversations because of relationships we build. I I pray you would give boldness to those who need it this, this morning to have hard conversations with people who are headed in the wrong direction. God, I pray that you would open up boldness in our lives to speak words of good news to those who need it. I also pray for those, God, who feel this urgency all the time, that you would give patience where it's needed, that the timing would be right. And though we never know the timing and never completely fulfilled or like we know what it is or confident on our own, we trust your spirit will speak in the gaps that we don't know what to say. We trust that you're in charge and care for these people even more than we do. God, I I pray for boldness and patience in the right measure to the right people this morning. And may you uh, cover these conversations as they happen this week and in the weeks to come. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Be standing now as we close our time together. As you share the good news this week in your homes, in your communities, in your jobs, wherever these things happen, may you do it full of grace and truth. May we love God. May we love people. May we serve others. Go in peace.